0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays.
1: First Book of Samuel, chapter twenty-three, beginning at verse fourteen, page two nine six. David stayed in the desert strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. While David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horesh and helped him to find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You shall be a king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horesh. The Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh, on the hills of Hakilar, south of Jeshimon? Now, O king, come down whenever it pleases you to do so, and we will be responsible for handing him over to the king. Saul replied, The Lord bless you for your concern for me. Go and make further preparation. Find out where David usually goes and who has seen him there. They tell me he is very crafty. Find out about all the hiding places he uses and come back to me with definite information. Then I will go with you. If he is in the area, I will track him down among all the clans of Judah. So they set out and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the desert of Maon in the Arabah south of Jeshimon. Saul and his men began the search, and when David was told about it, he went down to the rock and stayed in the desert of Maon. When Saul heard this, he went into the desert of Maon in pursuit of David. Saul was going along one side of the mountain, and David and his men were on the other side, hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul, saying, Come quickly, the Philistines are reigning the land. Then Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to meet the Philistines. That is why they call this place Selah Hamalakoth. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. The second reading can be found on page 575. This is Psalm 54 and it's a psalm of David following the incident we've just read about. Psalm 54, page 575. Save me, O God, by your name. Vindicate me by your might. Hear my prayer, O God. Listen to the words of my mouth. Strangers are attacking me. Ruthless men seek my life, men without regard for God. Surely God is my help, the Lord is the one who sustains me. Let evil recoil on those who slander me. In your faithfulness, destroy them. I will sacrifice a freewill offering to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from all my troubles, and in my eyes have looked in triumph on my foes.
0: David, uh, thank you very much indeed. Well, as we sit, let's uh, pray together. Our Father, we've been singing uh, just a little while ago of uh, the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus, who is the one who leads us, who leads us in life, who leads us through death, who leads us well. And we pray as we look at uh, the one who came before him, David, today in your word, we pray that we would see pictures of the Lord Jesus to be encouraged to follow his leadership whatever things look like to us, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, let me add my welcome uh, to that of Pete's earlier and uh, encourage you to turn uh, back into your Bibles to the first of the two readings that David read for us just now, 1 Samuel chapter 23, and uh, the second half of that chapter, uh, looking as we continue to look through uh, the second half of 1 Samuel. Uh, you might also find it helpful to dig out the little handout, uh, the uh, sermon outline, so you'll see where we're going in the next few moments. I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, the business, uh, woman, Japanese businesswoman and entertainer, Minieko Iwasaki, whether you've heard of her or not. This is what she wrote, stab the body and it heals, but injure the heart and the wound lasts a lifetime. Anyone who has, as we say, been stabbed in the back, betrayed by a friend or family or a colleague will know just how painful it is, how long it lasts. Well, look, as we turn to 1 Samuel again this week, we continue to see the sufferings of David, the Lord's anointed, more literally the Christ. We see the sufferings of the Christ on his painful path to the throne and here in chapter 3 23 we particularly see the suffering of betrayal betrayed by those he came to save Uh, we saw last week in the very uh, first half of the of the chapter how the town of Keilah were ready to betray David the very town that he'd risked his life for and rescued from the hands of the Philistines the same people that David saved were ready to betray him you'll see that in verse 12 we saw it last week as a result David headed for the hills verse 14 he stayed in the desert strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph day after day Saul searched for him but God did not give David into his hands while David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph he learned that Saul had come out to take his life Saul's determination to eliminate David had become a nationwide manhunt you can imagine posters of David's face with the words wanted dead or alive nailed to trees with the promise of a substantial reward now whether that was the case or not something prompted the Ziphites the people of the desert of Ziph to betray David look down to verse 19. The Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah and said, is not David hiding among us at the strongholds of Horish on the hill of Hakilar, south of Jeshimon? Now, O king, come down whenever it pleases you to do so and we will be responsible for handing him over to the king. So do you see, this chapter is about two betrayals, one in the first half of the chapter, one in the second. And of course, it points us to the one who would come after David. Great David's greater son, the Lord Jesus, he too was betrayed by those he came to save. One of his disciples, one of the twelve, one he had lived with, one whom he had befriended and taught and brought into his inner circle, his name was Judas, betrayed him for thirty pieces of silver. It was, humanly speaking, one of the things that led him to suffer and die on a cross and as painful as his physical suffering was how painful must it have been to have been betrayed by Judas now look as we follow Jesus the Christ we too will suffer these references are on the handout Jesus said if they persecuted me and of course they did if they persecuted me they will persecute you also he said that to his disciples a writing to Christians in Asia Minor, Peter, one of his disciples, understood this. He wrote, To this you were called, referring to a life of suffering. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Here in 1 Samuel 23, we see David, the Lord's anointed, the Christ with a small c, uh, suffering and being betrayed. We see the Lord Jesus suffering and suffering betrayal. And so as we follow the Christ, the Lord Jesus, we will suffer, and we will suffer betrayal. We will suffer betrayal from the hands of those we love, those we tried to help with the gospel, and even those we've worked alongside in gospel ministry. It happened to Jesus, it will happen to us. All over the world, people who turn to Christ are, are betrayed by their loved ones, but it's not just happening in countries far away it's happening here in Britain when I worked in in London a young Muslim girl a lawyer started attending the lunchtime service I was involved with she became a Christian but she was terrified that her parents would discover her faith in Christ as she knew that if they did they would cut her off from her family she feared they might go further Uh, I can still remember her coming to the lunchtime service week after week. She couldn't go to church on a Sunday in her local area, uh, because if she did, her parents would know where she was going. But she was at work in the West End. She could slip out at lunchtime and come to the service each week. But she nervously slipped into the church building, checking that no one around her was watching her. No one knew her going in. At the very same meeting each week, I often met with a man in his mid-fifties. He was raised Jewish, Orthodox Jew, no less. His wife was a devout Jew. His grown-up children were, too, fully involved in their synagogue. One of his children was considering becoming a rabbi. But this man had become a Christian long before I met him. Uh, He was a wonderful, wonderful Christian man. I was humbled as I met with him about his real deep faith in Jesus Christ He was convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ that his Jewish scriptures pointed to. So he was a Christian man, but he was fearful that if his wife ever discovered that he was a Christian, she would expose him to his whole family and they would all disown him. His fears were not without substance. He experienced his wife's fury once, just after he'd become a Christian. Without telling her that he was now a follower of Jesus, he tried to gently raise the thought that maybe Jesus was their promised Messiah. And she went ballistic, being betrayed by those we love because we follow Jesus. It happens to young British students too. Some of our students here as they've become Christians have found their families really hostile towards them. Being disowned and betrayed by family is very painful. I've experienced it with colleagues. I think of one man who sat in my study here in Forward, spoke warmly and well of uh, the ministry of Christ Church Forward. He wanted to be in gospel partnership with us. He was asking me if I might send some people from this church family to be part of his church family, the church family he was vicar of. A few years after that conversation, he was given a position of authority in the diocese and I was in a meeting where he publicly spoke against the ministry of this church and then I'm told by others that he tried to block our church planting initiatives. Now that shouldn't surprise us. Here we see David, the Lord's anointed, the Christ suffering betrayal. Then we saw the Lord Jesus Christ suffering betrayal. And as we follow him, we too can expect to suffer the same way. For David, here in 1 Samuel, these betrayals left his life in danger. And as far as David could see, he could run, but he could not completely hide. Look again with me at verse 15. While David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. Now, more literally, that verse could be translated, and I put this on the handout. It could more literally be translated, David saw that Saul had come out to see his life. From what David could see with his own eyes, the situation looked very bleak indeed. It's often the way, isn't it? For If we just look around us, it doesn't look good. It didn't look good when the one who followed David, the Lord Jesus, was betrayed. He was surrounded by men with swords. He was arrested and tried and sentenced to death on a cross and it looked bleak. As the disciples looked, it looked terrible. That's how it is for those of us who follow the Christ. When we just look with our eyes, it looks awful. All over the world, people have been persecuted for being Christian. And for Christians here in Britain, the situation looks increasingly bleak. Now, I don't know how you view it, but let me tell you how I view it when I just look with my eyes at what I see around here in Britain. I see a nation that is becoming more and more ungodly more and more materialistic less and less a Christian country less tolerant of real Christianity so much in this nation seems to mitigate against God's kingdom I fear for this nation I fear for the church in this land I fear for the next generation and certainly for our grandchildren's generation, I fear that there may be no faithful gospel witness in this land. The society we're living in is increasingly debauched. I reckon anybody who's over 50 will feel this. From what I see, there is a shamelessness about actions that years ago, well, may have been happening, but at least they were done quietly in a corner. People don't blush anymore about the things they do. They seem to be quite open about All sorts of things that they really shouldn't be doing. Then look at the wider church. The wider church that is actually going against the gospel. As I mentioned earlier, issues of human sexuality that are clear in the Bible are being debated and discussed in the Church of England as if we don't know what God has said on these matters. I say all that because to me, from what I can see, things look bleak. Just as everything David could see looked bleak. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life, verse 15. But what we can see is not the whole story. And crucially, sandwiched between these two betrayals, we hear fantastic words that encourage us to find strength in God. The first point on the handout. Sorry, that's a very long introduction. It's not that long from here on in. Find strength in God, verses 16 to 18. Verse 16, Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horesh and helped him to find strength in God. In these three verses, we have the most wonderful example of how we should think when we're betrayed and suffering and when everything around us looks bleak and perilous. With Saul bearing down on David, David not knowing where to turn, Jonathan came to David and helped him to find strength in God and then he said verse 17 don't be afraid we notice how often the bible uses those three little words don't be afraid and have you noticed how often those three words are spoken when fear is the obvious response in a terrifying and life-threatening situation when fear is natural we're told again and again don't be afraid How could David not fear? Saul was after him and hell bent on eliminating him. How could David not be afraid? Read on, verse 17. Don't be afraid, said Jonathan. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You shall be king over Israel and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. See the little promise there? You shall be king over Israel. It's a very specific promise to David. It had already been given to David back in chapter 16 when he was anointed, when he was, became, it's a word, the Lord's Christ, anointed. It was promised that he would become king. Of course, uh, it's exactly what we see when we look at David's greater son, the Lord Jesus. When things looked as bleak as they could be for Jesus, as he hung on a Roman cross, as darkness descended over the whole land, and as he cried out in anguish, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Looking on, it looked bleak. But as Jesus quoted the beginning of Psalm 22, he hadn't forgotten how Psalm 22 goes on. He knew the promise of Psalm 22 that all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all families of the nations will bow down to him. See, when everything we can see with our eyes looks bleak, when we suffer and are betrayed because we're Christians, we should remember the promise of verse 17. Now, we need to be very clear here as we look at verse 17. This promise that says to David you shall be king over Israel. We can't just apply that to ourselves directly. We're not David. We are not the Lord's anointed. We won't be king over God's people. But here's the thing, we, promise, we follow the one who is king over God's people. For us, verse 17 is, and I've written it down on here, the promise that the kingdom of the Christ will be established by God. The kingdom of the Christ will be established by God. So when I look at this nation and find myself depressed and low and fearful for the future of God's people in Britain, when everything around me looks bleak, when I fear that there'll be no faithful gospel witness in this land in future generations, I need to hear the words of verse 17, don't be afraid because the promise of the kingdom is that the kingdom of the Christ will be established. I need to remember what Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. That's the promise. So different from everything I can see, but it's the promise of God. The God who is all powerful, the God who cares more than I ever will for his people and for his church and for his glory, he has promised And what we see next is that promise being played out in front of our very eyes. So from find strength in God over the page on the handout, secondly, to trust the Lord and not what you see, verses 19 to 28. See, as Saul went home, verse 18, the Ziphites went to Saul and betrayed David, as we've already seen, verse 19. The Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah and said, is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Horish, on the hill of Hakilah, south of Jeshimon? Now, O king, come down whenever it pleases you to do so, and we will be responsible for handing him over to the king. The Ziphites gave Saul precise details of David's whereabouts. First, they gave him the general location, the strongholds of Horesh, then the actual hill, the hill of Hakilah, and finally the precise location south of Jeshimoth. And as they gave Saul the details, I can see Saul whipping out his map with all his generals around him in a secret bunker, pinpointing the exact location their enemy David was. Saul was delighted, verse 21. Saul replied, The Lord bless you for your concern for me. Go and make further preparation. Find out where David usually goes and who has seen him there. They tell me he's very crafty. Find out about all the hiding places he uses and come back to me with definite information. Then I'll go with you if he's in the area. I'll track him down among all the clans of Judah. See, Saul not only has the, uh, the fact of where he is, but he now has some willing scouts who, are, who know the area, like the back of their hand. Saul wasn't gonna leave any stone unturned. He knew where David was. Now he wanted to know his every movement so he could track him down. Saul sensed this was his moment. And so from this point on in the story, the chase is on. And as we read the next verses, remember, David has 600 men with him. So that's not easy to move around, and it's very difficult to hide. So verse 24, the Ziphites set out and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the desert of Maon in the Arabah, south of Jeshimon. Saul and his men began the search. And when David was told about it, he went down to the rock and stayed in the desert of Maon. When Saul heard this, he went into the desert of Maon in pursuit of Saul. Saul was going along one side of the mountain and David and his men were on the other side, hurrying to get away from Saul. Can you picture the scene? David and his men on one side of the mountain, Saul and his army on the other and closing in. John Woodhouse writes, possibly we are to see Saul's troops executing a pincer movement from one side of the mountain. They move in both directions toward David on the other side. So there's David hurrying, scrabbling to get away from Saul with nowhere to go. End of verse 26, Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men to capture them. And as we hold our breath, waiting for Saul to pounce and finally get his man, at that very moment, verse 27, a messenger came to Saul saying, Come quickly, the Philistines are raiding the land. Then Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to meet the Philistines. Would you believe it? What a coincidence, or was it? What did Jonathan tell David? Verse 17, don't be afraid, my father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You shall be king over Israel. And why was Jonathan so confident? Because that's what God had promised and he had confidence in the strength of God, verse 16. He had confidence in the God who is so in control of everything that he can even mobilise and direct the movements of the enemy the philistine army if you'd been there that day you wouldn't have actually seen god not with your own eyes what do you think david and his men talked about as they sat around the fire that night in the strongholds of engedi region i imagine one of david's men recounting how close it was saying i'm sure we were doomed another replies yeah i could hear them getting closer and closer i thought my time was up Another with relief in his voice. I can't believe it. I really thought I'd never see my family again. And what of David? What did he say? Well, we don't have to guess because he wrote a song about it and it's in the Bible and we had it read earlier. It's Psalm 54, page 575. Come with me, if you will, to Psalm 54, page 575. Here's what David wrote about that amazing time as saul pursued him see david wrote this psalm you'll see it there at the top of the heading now of course in the bible not all the headings that we have in our bibles are actually in the original text but whenever you read the psalms the headings were actually written there so we know this was verse 54 uh, uh, psalm 54 a psalm of david and notice when the ziphites had gone to saul and said is not david hiding among us our exact story when that happened, encouraged by Jonathan to find strength in God, David called out to God to save him. Verse 1 Save me, O God, by your name. Vindicate me by your might. Hear my prayer, O God. Listen to the words of my mouth. Strangers are attacking me. Ruthless men seek my life. Men without regard for help. See, looking simply at the situation, from what David could see with his own eyes, he was in a dire situation. But David trusted God, verse four. Surely God is my help. The Lord is the one who sustains me. And at the end of the day, when he wrote the song, he could rejoice, verse seven, for God has delivered me from all my troubles and my eyes have looked in triumph on my foes. See, in David's mind, there was no doubt. It was God who delivered him. That's why the Philistines came and attacked when they did. God was directing them. We can see it, of course, when we look back at our story in 1 Samuel chapter 23. It couldn't have been anyone else. Here was God keeping his promise. He promised that David would be king. He promised that the kingdom of the Christ would be established. And what he did for David, he will do all the more for his son, the Lord Jesus. So even when it looks so bleak, as Jesus was betrayed and then crucified, dead and buried when it looks so bleak to his disciples. We know three days later he rose again and he ascended into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the father and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. The kingdom of God and of his Christ will be established. So don't lose heart. 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 17. Don't be afraid. Find strength in God. Trust the Lord and not what you see. And finally, as we close, and very briefly, follow Jonathan's example. See, as we go back to verses 15, 16, 17, and 18, we see Jonathan standing out as a man of great faith. Now, see how Jonathan is described in verse 16 as Saul's son, Jonathan. And then twice in verse 17, uh, the, the the handout should read, My he says, my father Saul, not my father said. Three times in two verses we're reminded that Jonathan is Saul's son. Why are we, why are we reminded of that? Well, the point is this Jonathan is the crown prince, the next in line to the throne. All things being equal, Jonathan stands to inherit Saul's kingdom. And with it, all the trappings of that kingdom, a life of wealth and luxury and success. As we've seen these last weeks, Saul represents worldly leadership and everything the world offers. Jonathan stood to inherit it all. But long before chapter 23, Jonathan acknowledged David as the Lord's anointed as the Christ. We don't have to look it up now, but back in chapter 18, Jonathan made a covenant with David And as a sign of that covenant, he took off his royal robe, the royal robe that he was wearing, and he gave it to David. In effect, he was saying to David, you are the king. More than that, he was saying, you are my king. And remembering that changes the way we read Jonathan's words in verse 17. So he says, don't be afraid. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You shall be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. You see, this is not Jonathan grabbing for a privileged position, vying to be David's second in command. No, here is the crown prince, the next in line to the throne, giving way to David, playing second fiddle. I'll be second to you. In Jonathan, then, we see one who has changed allegiance. His loyalty is with the Christ. His loyalty is not with the family he was physically born into, but to God's family. He followed the Christ even though it was dangerous and he ran the risk of being betrayed by his own flesh and blood. Jonathan could have striven to be king, could have seen David as rival, hankered after wealth, materialistic comfort and success. But Jonathan wasn't seduced by all those things, all the things the world offers. Instead, he gave it all up to follow God and to become completely loyal to the kingdom of the Christ. Jonathan put all his eggs in one basket. He valued the things of God more than the things of this world, completely trusting God's promise that the Christ would rule. See, that's what it means to find strength in God. That is how we stand firm, even when everything around us looks bleak, even when we're suffering, even when we face the devastating suffering of betrayal. We're to trust the promise of a greater kingdom to come, a kingdom that will last, a kingdom where one day there will be no more suffering, a kingdom where one day I will be safe and secure and will never face the prospect of being rejected or betrayed ever again. Let's pray together. We thank you, our Lord and God, for the wonderful picture of David, the Christ with a small C, uh, the one who you had anointed, uh, being rescued, uh, being taken through suffering uh, to eventually come to sit on the throne. We thank you that your your son, the Lord Jesus, as he suffered, uh, was taken through suffering and betrayal, Uh, to sit on the throne we thank you that he reigns and we thank you that as we too follow in his way as we too suffer and are betrayed and will be betrayed that we can be sure that the the christ is king and his kingdom will be established and help us to believe that and so to be able to stand firm help us to trust in you and not what we see And as we do that, we pray that we would be able to say we will not fear and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.